And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Pecco Bagnaia's romp to a second MotoGP world title continued with a steamroller of a weekend in Austria where he notched up a perfect score to build what feels like unstoppable momentum on the number one Ducati. Well done to those of you who have already worked out this isn't Matt Beer's voice. Matt's away this week, so you have me, Glenn Freeman, standing in. And I suppose if I'd really committed to this properly, I'd now declare myself to be some form of stand-in rider from the last five years. But uh, maybe the guys here can come up with one for me because as always we have Simon Patterson and Val Harunshi here with us and Val I'm delighted to say that you were back in the paddock this weekend for the first time in a while so how was it? Yeah it's been a while and it's it's interesting to see that like it just took me one weekend of being away and obviously Matt has quit so that's a shame <laughs> and Glenn has this job permanently now this is disinformation obviously um and Glenn if you want a stand-in rider I'm just gonna, always gonna go Mike Jones that's always going to be my pick. Oh, wow. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't see that. I was going to push for Michaeli Pirro, but he might be a bit too good. Yeah. Too prolific. Yeah. Too prolific as well. Different Mike Jones was also really good in his stand and right, so maybe I'll reevaluate this one. Let's see how the episode goes. Um, it was... Uh, I'd love to sit here and say that it was extremely easy and it felt like, you know, like riding a bike, you've not been away at all. It's just... It really wasn't. It was very energy demanding that I think it's... Yeah, it, it is obviously a dream job for a lot of people and myself included, but it's the kind of thing where you don't quite appreciate just how hectic and crazy it gets when you're in there in that time span of even, you know, of course, the weekend goes Thursday to Sunday, but you don't get many minutes to breathe and you're always like sort of juggling some sort of task. And whenever you take a minute of downtime, you feel guilty about it, but you're just, you know, when the tank's on zero, it's on zero. Uh, fortunately, the track facilities are great at the Red Bull ring, and I, I drank way too much organic Red Bull, which cannot be good for my health, absolutely. But that was that was what was on offer, and I've I've gorged myself on that. Also, I, I'm, I'm not going to go in depth in this because already I felt great shame talking about it in the paddock over and over and over again, but I did, of course, lose my passport for two hours on, on Thursday. Those two hours completely wrecked 25% of my weekend, basically. So the rest of it was relatively serene compared to those those two hours. So it's not like riding a bike, but it's maybe like riding a Honda is what you're saying there. Yeah, absolutely. You come away from it crushed. And, <laughs> yeah, and everything hurts. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Simon, I have to ask, how was it for you having Val back in the paddock? Well, now that he's essentially acknowledged how much work that I am forced to do every weekend, 20 weekends a year, I feel like it makes the rest of my year quite easy. You know, I feel like he's taken a lot of the pressure off me when it comes to things like deadlines and that, now that he's actually experienced a Grand Prix weekend again. So, yeah, I'd love that. It was great having Val there. He can come back. (laughs) (laughs) Val's going to be generous with his commissions. 
And then, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't. I, wouldn't well, I was going to say the final call rests with Matt. So whenever he's done either raising his kids or drinking cider or whatever he's doing, he'll come back and go, no, I'm not having this. Do some more work, both of you. Um, so let's do some work now. Let's talk about what you guys actually saw in Austria. Now, there's usually so much going on on a MotoGP weekend that quite often in these episodes, I feel like we get sort of three quarters of the way through before we go, oh, and by the way, Pekka Banyaya wiped the floor with everybody again. So I'm going to do, as I'm in charge, I'm going to do my bit, and we're going to do the Pekko section at the start of the show. Uh, it was a flawless weekend for the reigning champion, Val, and I'm slightly scared that your answer here might be quite short. How can anyone stop him? No, but I, you know, things do ultimately happen. 62 points. I've, yeah, Fabio Quartararo likened Pecco's current run of form to basically Max Verstappen and Formula One right now. But you look at the amount of points still available in Formula One and Max's lead, and it's like he has like 60%, his lead is like 60% of the available points. And for Pecco, it's like 16%. So it's it's just under two race weekends. You you can make up two race weekends. It doesn't doesn't often happen, but the, the mathematical possibilities obviously exist, and they're not in the realm of totally outrageous numbers. Um, unfortunately, it is MotoGP, so also you can never like rule out like something like a broken collarbone or something. Obviously, fingers crossed, nothing, nothing like that comes into play. On current form... No, it's not happening on current form. Pekka Banyaya will win the 2023 MotoGP title and will win it comfortably, probably with like two race weekends to spare or something. Um, it, he's not like he's not completely bulletproof. You, you can still throw in a bit of mixed conditions that catch him out. You can throw in slightly maybe a strange weekend in which he doesn't get to go through his full progression of work and work on his pace. And he's not he's not the outright obviously quickest every single time but he is he is the only rider on the grid who is at least among the top two or three quickest every time and that that will be enough as it stands because nobody else is even particularly close to being that now simon banyaya you know was was out front led and looked relatively unchallenged all the way we'll come to uh brad binder in a moment do you think and this was a this was a talking point over the weekend wasn't it do you think the moto gp on track product is suffering at the moment was this weekend an example of that and if it if it is is that because of peko's dominance the MotoGP on track product at the minute i think is as weak as i recall it being in well certainly in the time that i've been in MotoGP and i've been here since 2016 um for me we're now looking at races that are kind of carbon copies of the alien era whenever like one of four people just cleared off at the front completely dominated and and no one ever saw them again um and i i don't believe that that's peco bagnaya's fault um or or due to peco bagnaya and actually that's you know we did an interview with him earlier this season and he basically conceded as much as well that he didn't believe that he's next level talent that he's night and day better than the other guys in the grid at the minute and while the Ducati is good, it's not good enough to explain this margin that we have. Um, but you know, for me, it's it's completely obvious what's going on. It's uh, it's all to do with how bad Michelin's front tire is working right now. Because what we saw from the race was essentially uh, the race that we predicted, where someone got out in front, they sat there at not particularly fast a pace, which is something that Peko admitted to after the race. 
but they sat there long enough that the guy in second's front tire overheated. The pressure went through the roof. Because we've got our new pressure rules in play this weekend for the first real time, everyone had to be even more cautious with that. And once Bender's front tire got to the point where it was essentially unusable, Bagnaia just slowly creeped off into the distance and the race was won. Um, we, we saw the same battle play out multiple places throughout the field with, with similar circumstances. And when you speak to the guys, when you hear what they were saying afterwards, when you hear some of the numbers involved, then you know it, it makes sense that this is what's going wrong. Uh, Alicia Spagaro told us that so he, he the, the minimum pressure for Michelin is 1.88 bar, and you have to be over that limit at least 50% of the race. Uh, Alesh told us afterwards that they had started the sprint race at 1.5. They had started significantly lower in the Sunday race to the point that he ex- described it as having a flat tire in the first lap. And sort of three laps in, they're looking at 2.2, 2.3 bar pressure already. And from there on, it's just complete. It's just cruising around on ice, trying not to crash. You know, that is where this problem's coming from. Paco Bagnaia and Ducati are both doing a fabulous job, but they're not doing a job to this extent of dominance. Um, it's just the nature of the way that you know we've allowed the racing to go at the minute. I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not actually sure. I agree regarding this particular weekend and regarding Bagnaia's double win. Not in insofar that I don't think the tire pressure thing is a problem. I think it is very evidently clear that it is a problem because so many riders have mentioned it and cite hard and fast numbers that make it clear that, you know, running in the pack is detrimental and untenable, which you do not want in motorcycle racing. You do not want them running one by one, one second apart. But look, I don't I don't think Brad Binder was ever beating Peko Bagnaia in that race, just off, off of the relative pace of the two of them. Because, you know, even when the gap formed, by that point, Binder had already, on both occasions, Binder had already cooked his tire, and it was his rear tire, not the not the front. Rear tire, obviously, also doesn't like high temperatures and, you know, the wake of other bikes. But it was also, Bagnaia rode exactly in the way that some past Ducati riders have also rode and you know he set the pace that he saw as the right pace to take him optimal to the end he Binder clearly was giving it a lot especially on Sunday to try to put him under serious pressure but he never never got close enough to attack but it's not like it's not like a, a Formula One thing of dirty air where you can't control the bike behind him it's you know it happens more gradually uh, so if, if Binder had more he would have at least maybe led a lap or two at some point, found a way past. And it's just, I don't think it was in his arsenal at any point that weekend. And if any, if either of the Ducatis of like Pisecki or Martin could have done it, well, it's, you know, it's the fault of Pisecki and Martin that they didn't maximize qualifying, which both regretted more than anything that really happened in the race. Um, I think look the race was not great. It was it was pretty poor and I think I think it's fair to say that it was pretty poor even though we still did have a pretty long podium battle and things to talk about. It's just you know P1 and P2 were completely frozen for the entirety and a 5 5 second winning margin in MotoGP is always a bit yeah nobody's too happy with that. Um uh, there are clearly problems with the current rule set and the state of the racing. I just think that Sometimes like Banyaya walkovers are like they show correlation, but maybe they don't show the causation. They aren't the evidence 
that we should cite specifically, or at least they're evidence of something something else. You know, the parity. But the parity is not so bad at other tracks. I mean, this is the Red Bull Ring. It is, you know, Ducati is no longer the automatic Red Bull Ring winner that it was in the past. And they also, you know, they broke up the straight with the extra chicane, which shouldn't help them too much, although it shouldn't hurt them particularly either. Um, it's just, it was, it was unfortunate for MotoGP for the quality of the show that the other Ducatis just couldn't live with, with Bagnaia in qualifying and then couldn't bother him even in the early laps of the race. But it was also the malaise in terms of overtaking was evident further in the field and in what riders said afterwards. Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to sort of alter my answer slightly based on what Val said and haven't listened to him. Um, maybe if Peko Bagnaia's dominance decided anything this weekend, it was his dominance in qualifying because once he was qualified on the front row, um, we, we've seen it. The Ducati have made a step uh, with race start. They've done something to the race start that they're being very coy about at the minute that has really helped them close the, the advantage that KTM had. So once Bagnaia was in the front row, that, that was game over. Um, and yeah, that, that, you know, that's the dominance effect. Um, I think, you know, I, I still think it's fair to say that the quality all the way down the grid is suffering because of the tire pressure thing. Um, and, you know, I, for two, two factors or two pieces of evidence to throw in there. One is that I did a quick count and there was 13 changes of position in the last half of the race, the last 14 laps of the race, which is like four, 13 overtakes, less than one lap. That's not normal for MotoGP. Um, yeah. I think we've had races at the Red Bull Ring where there's been more than that between the leaders, you know, for first yeah. and second in in the last half of the race. Uh, and we and, and we've had some really pace limited riders in in that second part of the race. So in theory, there should like it, it is it is probably indicative of something that you know Jack Miller and Johan Zarco in particular both looked extremely vulnerable in that second yeah. part of the race. But it was riders couldn't really overtake him without having to get maybe creative or maybe harsher than they they'd like to be which is why you know you always wait until the final lap and then maybe on the final lap something something does happen i think something did we didn't really see it on the broadcast but i think something did yeah um and then you know the the other thing to throw in there is the fact that yeah, we we are in a championship where satellite team bosses regularly complain about how difficult it is to get their bikes in the grid because the the championships broadcast focuses on the top three to the exclusion of almost everyone else. Yet at one stage yesterday, we watched like two and a half laps of the battle for twelfth because it was the first piece of interesting action they could find anywhere in the field. Uh, that that's also a pretty big red flag about you know the level at the minute. I think. There's no harm in seeing a yeah a bit more of the action. I think um, that's yeah. that's an ongoing problem. And while I don't get a kick out of seeing people crash, I do find it odd when someone has an accident. You get the little crash logo, you find out they're okay, and we never see it. And and particularly yeah. in a race like yesterday, where you did have you might have two or three laps at a time where nothing happens. Show us Joe Mir falling off. You know, I know it happens a lot, but it'd be nice yeah. to see it. And I'm going to throw in just before we move on. I'm going to throw in an extra point about this because we've talked really exclusively about the tire pressure issue. There, Mark Marquez brought up a kind of ongoing debate where he was blaming the rules. So he's blaming the 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 engineering of the bikes, the aero, the ride height devices, all the things we've heard before. But he raised a red flag as well, saying. If we don't have technical changes to the rules before 2027, 
a lot more damage is going to be done with the on-track product until then, and that's going to put MotoGP in a much more difficult position when those changes come around. Simon, you you were talking there about the tyre pressure issue. How serious is what Marquez is talking about as well? It's two sides of the same coin. Right. The the problem that we've got is that the we have cut and cut and cut the amount of testing that's available to the entire MotoGP grid now to the extent that it's like six or seven days a year. It's it's practically nothing. And in that same time, we've made a huge jump forward all of a sudden in terms of performance because of all this aero stuff. Um, the ride height devices, the wings, the diffusers, everything. So th- there's been a huge step forward during a time where Michelin haven't been able to test a new front tyre. And the problem is that the, for maybe for the first time ever, we've now got bikes that are way more technically capable than the tyres underneath them. And with our tyres paying such a huge factor, this is what we're seeing. The, the, they can't cope with the extra pressure generated by the extra braking forces that come from the aero and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, we're, we've been promised a new Michelin front tyre next season. That will shake up the championship it will cause changes and it will favor some people and disadvantage others um it might also fix this problem like let's be honest it it might um there is a possibility that this will make the problem go away and that racing will get better which is objectively a really good thing as fans um but that isn't going to close the gap to honda and yamaha because their issue is related to the fact that they haven't got on board with the aero thing uh when when Arguably, they should have, although COVID played a role in, in sort of distancing the engineers from their factories and making that harder. Uh, I, I don't think we necessarily need... What's the best way to put this? I don't think we're going to get technical changes because the arrow is here to stay. So um, as much as I'd like to see it go away, we're going to have to work with it as it is. And that's why I actually think that the the proposal to give Honda and Yamaha concessions without having earned them in the traditional sense actually makes a whole lot of sense because a manufacturer that's struggling with aero, uh, the best thing that they could get right now is the ability to test whenever they want with their racers as opposed to their test riders and the ability to bring your aerodynamic upgrades every weekend as opposed to once a season. Um, you know, if, if they were given that, that would close the door right away. Um, but it sounds like there's all sorts of internal politics going on that, is trying to stop that from happening. Yeah. Also, I think Mark obviously will have a bit of self-interest talking about the error. It's, you know, it's, it's just how it is. And he, he also acknowledged that people will see it that way, but yeah, his, his manufacturer is one that has badly lost out in the aero race and is now trying desperately to catch up and bringing aero fairings that look a lot like the aero fairings that we see on, on European bikes. Just, yeah, Low res I, ones, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I. You know what? I would say that because I would assume that, but my eye is too untrained to say. If you told me that's the highest, like the newest version, I'd be like, maybe. Look, it's all it's all random ornaments and stuff. I don't like any of them. The thing is, we you know, it, Italian media seems to be reporting that there are considerations of fairly significant changes for 2027, and that you know sort of arrows being discussed but if we come to an understanding that we need to do something to curb arrow or to to ban the right height devices or alter them at some point or to change something with electronics waiting to, to 
2027 is the regulatory answer because everybody's under existing deals with with Dorian, but it's not the world moves too fast and that's too long a period of time. What well, that's what that's one thirtieth, one twentieth of our lives. These three four years. No, no, no. You have to. And the, the manufacturers that are standing their ground, they will have to understand that. And they will have to be, I think Dorna needs to get active there. If I am needs to get active there and they, they will have to figure out a way for their built-in advantage there to be somehow paid off maybe in some other ways to think about. Like for instance, maybe, hey, a third team for KTM, the IO team or something like that. And in return, we get to get a bit of a move on on the on the regulatory changes because in, in that sense mark is right i think he understands like he understands better than most because he's getting on there in years in terms of MotoGP age 2027 will feel like a long long time away for him there is every chance that by 2027 he has moved into an off-track role um but everybody has to understand that. If you're 19, 20, you have to understand that. If you're 60 years old and you're running MotoGP, you have to understand that. It's, you know, it's a lot of time. The uh, the notion of Honda and Yamaha getting concessions before they've been earned as well. You don't have to go back very far before that would, when that would seem laughable. But uh, yeah. That's a discussion for another day. So Banyaya wiped the floor with everybody this weekend. We've established that. But I think Brad Binder's performance is worthy of a shout out. Let's face it, he was the only man who looked like he was in the same race as Pecco, even if he couldn't really stay there once his tyre boiled. Um, but so, Simon, if we take Pecco out of it for a moment, how good was Binder's weekend? It was exceptional. I mean, it, it was it was kind of what we expected because he's been in good form and this race is just so so important to him to ktm you know he he admitted at one point during the weekend that he knows he's essentially never getting a home race because MotoGP for whatever reason are not going to south africa like they really really should but um you know until that happens this is his home race this is his his race where he gets that extra motivation that extra buzz um he knew that coming into it and I think he delivered really well on it because he, yeah, he rode exceptionally well um, within the circumstances. It would have been an easy weekend for uh, a rider in his position to make a, a silly error, trying to do something that wasn't possible to do alongside Bagnaya. And he didn't do that. He settled for the results that he could achieve. And, and you know, that was best of the rest. So it's, it's not a kick in the teeth exactly. Um, but yeah, he did an, he did a great job. He outshone every other KTM by a significant margin, uh, especially his factory teammate, Jack Miller, who just did Jack Miller things on the KTM and was really fast for one lap and then useless after three laps into the race both times. Um, so, you know, it, it, it comes as no surprise that even before we went racing, KTM rewarded Binder with another contract extension um, that that looked to be like the easiest deal in history. Um, yeah, that that is no shock whatsoever. Yeah, Val, let's talk about that contract extension a little bit. Is is Binder? Yeah, KTM is clearly backing Brad. He's our guy. He's the one delivering. Uh, as Simon mentioned, he's put Jack Miller firmly in the shade. 
But is he good enough to be their lead rider in a championship fight if the bike ever gets to that level? Are we seeing enough from him to believe that's a possibility? Yeah, for sure. 100%. Yeah. I, I, I don't have any particular doubts on that. And I, to be fair, I started, I think in the off-season, I was saying that if if we were going into the season and Binder was in a factory, Ducati would probably consider him the, the championship favourite. But what I've seen so far this year hasn't really dissuaded me from seeing it that way. I've discussed it with some of you know some fellow German journalist colleagues uh, at the Red Bull Ring, and I think we came to a consensus that if you put Binder and Banyaya in a dominant Ducati team, then maybe Banyaya's extra click of single lap pace in particular and sort of Sunday tactical approach would make be make him the favorite but if you put them in a Ducati that was the best bike but not like by a huge margin there was a lot of interference then it's Binder's consistent scoring very reliable racing and the fact that he's you know he keeps mistakes to a relative minimum and knows exactly how much how much margin to to save um that would probably maybe make him favorite. I think I think Brad is absolutely a very smart pick for franchise rider for KTM. I think I think I think he's been I think he's been maybe the if not Banya has been the standout rider of the season, but Binder has been very, very close. Um he's you know he's basically proving every weekend that they're they they've been right to to bet on him from as far back as they did. Back when they offered him that first early contract extension yeah, you know, basically two years ago exactly. I I was a little bit surprised because I felt KTM wasn't keeping its options open enough. When this contract extension came in, well, like Simon, I thought, oh, that's well, that's easy. That makes total sense. If if you want me to name, like, I don't know the financials. The financials will determine this. But if you want me to name the big winner, it's it's KTM. It's not Binder. Binder does not need job security right now. If KTM somehow let Binder go, Brad Binder would absolutely find another gig on the MotoGP grid, and it would be a very good gig. So if you know, if anything, maybe you could even say maybe Brad Binder should have tried to wait it out and see, you know, test the waters, test the market. But clearly, there was not not a ton of interest in that, and I think that's also justified because what KTM has shown this year and its level of relentless investment, I think at this point you would it is a good horse to bet on. That's that's how I would put it. Yeah, he's not in a bad place, uh, is he? You, now, you mentioned if they let him go, KTM could do with losing somebody, perhaps, not Brad. Uh, but it wouldn't be a MotoGP podcast, even a race review, without us talking about the rider market. There's more of that to come. But before we move on from KTM, Val, what's the latest on this troubling situation of having five riders for four seats next year? Sounds like this is going to be this information is going to be outdated by the time I finish this sentence. So, <laughs> uh, uh, our colleague Gunther Wiesinger from Speed Week, who is very you know very hooked up with KTM and you know gets basically the first line always from their from their senior management of let's just say KTM and the the, the wider uh, Pure Mobility Group with CEO Stefan Pierre. Um, Basically, this weekend it sounds like KTM has resigned that it's not has resigned to defeat that it is not going to get uh, a third team, the third team that it wants on the MotoGP grid, which would be the instrument to resolve its rider logjam first and foremost, and then maybe theoretically also look at signing Mark Marquez or whatever. But first and foremost, solving this insane situation. Um, so what? they seem to say at that time of that admission was that 
this would then be uh, like a direct shootout between Paul Espargaro, who is under contract, and Augusto Fernandez, who is also apparently under contract for a seat for 2024, a seat that they're both, again, apparently under contract for. And the other seat would go to Pedro Acosta, who is apparently under contract. Um, I don't I don't know if that's the case, though, because then on after the race, it sounded like Augusto Fernandez, who is the rider who you would expect to lose the shootout because he is, you know, less experienced and because Paul seems to have regained a lot of form this weekend already at the Red Bull ring. And, you know, you would expect Paul to run higher up for the for the rest of the season than Augusto. Augusto Fernandez said that he was personally assured that he will ride for Tech 3 Gas Gas next year. But Paul Espargo is under contract to ride for Tech 3 Gas Gas next year. Pedro Acosta is presumably under some form of contract to ride some form of KTM next year. And obviously the two factory bikes, two factory riders are under contracts. Contracts can be broken in MotoGP. We just saw that with, you know, Alex Rins on his two-year Honda deal that he will only do one year of one half year, given how long he's been injured. But it's, there's, there is just like, they've left themselves. It feels like no elegant solution. It, it does feel like it's getting weirder by the minute. We, you know, one of the KTM higher-ups uh, suggested that they will try to get get through this with an expanded test rider role, but I cannot see this appealing massively to Augusto Fernandez or, or Paul Espargaro. There's also been you know persistent rumblings that they will still try to figure out the a, a loan to a rival manufacturer satellite team for for one of the riders. But it's yeah, it's it's just. It's an, let's put it this way, it is an ongoing mess and let's not say anything too firm because it could absolutely just change tomorrow. Maybe they'll sign five more people. We'll see. KTM have somehow managed to take the uh, crap way in which they've managed riders over the past few seasons and made it so much worse, which is remarkable. I didn't think they could go any lower, but here we are. Um, I mean, this situation is arguably worse than the situation they find themselves in whenever they were forced to sack Danilo Petrucci mid-session while he was riding their motorbike at the Red Bull Ring to ensure that they could keep Raul Fernandez under contract only to then sack him like a season, half a season into his first year in turn. Um, it's a horrendous way to deal with riders and to manage riders because it sounds like they're promising everyone in the world and someone is going to lose out in the musical chairs. Um, the the more I've been thinking about this and the more I've been looking at it over the last sort of 24 hours since the end of yesterday's race is, is that I actually think the person that, that no one has really mentioned here who should be quite worried is Jack Miller because he's the guy that's not going to got an excuse for having, you know, handed his ass handed to him every week by his teammate. Um, I know you can say he's new to the bike, but so is rookie Augusto Fernandez and Ru- Augusto is performing really, really well. Uh, Paul Espargaro hasn't rode the bike in a few years. Uh, he's back on it this season. He's been injured a lot of this season through, you know, arguably not through much fault of his own, um, given the state of Portimao when he crashed. And he's back fighting with Jack Miller again in the sprint race on Saturday. Um, Miller looks weak right now. And I I know that he has a KTM contract, but, you know, KTM... Not only do we know that KTM will be mercenary because they have in the past, but they've got no other choice than to be mercenary here because they've promised the world to everyone and they just can't deliver in that. So, yeah, um, Miller's name hasn't come up and, and maybe it should a bit more. I, I, th- I think it is, it is pretty clear that 
they, they specifically, they do not want to come off as mercenary this year, but they've put themselves in a situation where they have to get insanely creative and very smart to, to create a situation where all the riders that they, you know, they've signed under contract. And I think all the riders that they, they have good reason to be happy with, basically all of them. I mean, yeah, Miller's having a bit of a race-based slump, and it has been fairly substantial, but at the, by the same coin, you could say he was one of the standouts of the early parts of the season. I think it's too early to forget that, and certainly I, I would hope KTM doesn't forget that. Um, I, I There is a part of me that, that sympathizes, I guess, and we don't know the exact mechanics of what's happening, but like it's, it's just very untidy again i you know i've been long how i would go about saying that i've been i've long said the same thing uh, apologize to augusto seven million times promise him you know obviously the full salary etc and put him on an io moto 2 bike to maybe become moto 2 champion again by he is he's 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 good he's a great asset to have you you desperately want to keep him in the family. He's very smart. KTM just clearly really really likes him. There's a very obvious human element there, but and you and you can wait and see if Paul wants to call time at the end of 2024 and then immediately bring Augusto back in because none of the like KTM junior juniors are quite immediately ready right now. And also you might just get your third team then. You might get Io on the grid, Aki Io's Moto2 team to bring it into Premier Class. Then you can have that that place for Augusto. Um, but he's the one who is, I think, the, the odd man out in terms of the, the like the ceiling of performance. You're not going to tell Pedro Costa to go test ride, are you? Of course not. Everybody knows that. You're going to have Pedro Costa on one of your bikes next year. And it, it really has to be a KTM if you know what you're doing. He has to be on, on the KTM. You don't want to, him tasting uh, tasting some other manufacturer and then getting used to that and deciding, actually, I'm okay continuing this. And Paul, I think this weekend already has shown that what you brought him back for is is still there. You still want to want to see more from that and want to give him a proper season. The the whole thing is, and it depends on your your, I guess, what way you read it, whether it's arrogance or confidence. But it looks increasingly likely KTM has went into all the rider negotiating positions, just presuming there'd be an extra team in the grid. And I, I know that has suddenly not happened and this is the price that they pay for that hubris in uh and you know making that assumption um dorna for reasons that i have to admit i really don't understand are playing hardball and uh yeah until you know until ktm finds six more spots in the grid there's no easy way out of this two more spots in the grid sorry and now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, 
an official partner of The Athletic. Let's do some more rider market then, as on Sunday, the big story was the confirmation that Johan Zarco is giving up the best bike on the grid to instead ride the worst. Uh, Simon, help me out here. Why is Zarco swapping a Pramac Ducati for an LCR Honda? Has he gone mad? So I, I will give you on Zarco credit. I asked him that exact question <laughs> using the exact phrase best bike to worst bike. And he was okay with it. He kind of agreed. Um, so well, I mean, he's got him, eyes. He can read a timesheet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but racers, that doesn't always necessarily mean that they, they see what they want from true, it. True, true. Um, now, he, he made a relatively convincing argument on uh, on Sunday afternoon about the, the decision to move to LCR. Um Ducati offered him a one-year deal. And part of the reason that Ducati offered him a one-year deal is because they really desperately want him to be Alvaro Bautista's replacement in World Superbikes for 2025. Uh, Zarco has kind of existed year-to-year on one-year deals since he joined Ducati in 2019 for the 2020 season. Um, that is something that that is stressful. It's it's you know it's part of the reason why Jack Miller left Ducati and went to KTM because the the stress of constantly fighting for your position on a one year deal was was too much. Um, I think Zarco looked at the Ducati option, saw that it was probably only going to be for one more season, and then Honda came along and offered him uh, a deal that yeah it's worth more money and yeah it's on a bad bike. But it was a two-year deal with an option for his third season that secures his long-term future as a MotoGP rider, keeps him there as long as he wants to be there. And that's the reason why he took it. It's job security above everything else, above finances, above uh, the task or the, pardon me, the challenge or the quality of the machine. He wants to be a MotoGP rider more than he wants to be a MotoGP race winner, I guess. I think Simon will let me lie here. It was this 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 storyline was obviously unfolding with with Zarco clearly mulling the offers and thinking about it and seeming to take a decision on Saturday and then confirming it on Sunday potentially. He said that on Saturday he still hadn't made up his mind, but I, I suspect that he he at least knew very well where he was leaning. But yeah, Simon won't let me lie. I think when an early in the weekend Zarco interview came out in which Zarco said Ducati has the best bike but Honda seems to want me more. I'm fairly sure I turned to Simon and I was like, he's going to Honda. <laughs> riders go to where they're wanted. And that's financial, but also riders have egos. They go to where they're wanted. I went to Johan himself and I asked him that sort of exact question, not in those exact words. I didn't want him to, to tell me, you're definitely going to Honda or definitely to Ducati, but how important is that? And he was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's for the ego, it's, it's good. It matters. And I think we've seen over and over again with top level riders, they do not like being second option. They really dislike it. Uh, Zarco, he could have, it, it really does sound like he could have kept his Pramac ride. We'll get to why. But he was not the rider who Ducati would ideally have in that Pramac ride. And that's, I think that's, at that point, that's enough for him. He knows what that means. And for Honda, once Alex Rins was out, he is the absolute best possible LCR choice. And I presume Honda offered him the financial offer to corresponding to that, and I presume he took it. Well, let's pick up on what you said there. 
anytime something like this happens, anytime a, a big piece on the board moves, it creates a gap somewhere else. Val, what are the potential repercussions in the rider market? And the main thing for me is who gets that very desirable Pramac Ducati? Well, nobody knows yet for sure, but I, you know, the sort of the various corners of the MotoGP Media Center, and it seems like the MotoGP paddock have either independently or together or whatever, come to the conclusion that seems inevitable that Franco Morbidelli will have that ride, uh, having lost his, his Yamaha gig earlier this season. That's an excellent piece of falling upwards, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, really, it really is. Because that's, I mean, that team leads the, the team's championship right now, which Yamaha factory team em- emphatically, emphatically does not. Um, so I think there was the expectation that once Ducati gave Bezzecchi the ultimatum, Marco Bezzecchi the ultimatum, that if he wants a promotion to a factory spec bike in 2024, he has to take it at Pramac because that's Pramac's contract and that's how we prefer it. We do not want to give, you know, a fifth factory bike option. We want to keep it at four and that's going to be two in the factory team and two in Pramac. Well, you know, four in the factory team and four in Pramac because everybody has spares, but you know what I mean. Uh, And somehow, and it it sounds like team owner Valentino Rossi has played a a considerable part, somehow it really does sound like Marco Bezzecchi has been swayed to stay at VR46 uh, and, you know, give up the newer version of the Ducati to stay at the familiar team owned by his idol and his mentor. Uh, He hasn't, there has been no official confirmation. The closest we got to a confirmation was... Bisecki on Sunday after the race where he finished on the podium uh, telling the media that he'd made up his mind but can't can't tell the media what what the decision is yet but unless he had a massive change of heart in the grid or whatever and didn't tell anybody basically the understanding seems to be in the paddock that he is staying at VR46 which honestly makes more sense to me the more I think about it even outside of the you know the legend Valentino Rossi telling you to do it factor there's also Marco Bezzecchi's ultimate ambition is not to ride for Pramac. It is to be a factory rider as soon as possible, ideally Ducati factory rider. But ultimately, again, remember MotoGP riders' ego. They want to be a factory rider somewhere. They want to wear factory colors. They want to be paid like factory riders. They want to be one of the two main guys and ideally one of the one main guys. Uh, if Marco Bezzecchi stays at VR46 on a what will then be a 2023 Ducati that 2023 Ducati will be a very good bike at the start of 2024 it'll be a great bike and guess what in those first six seven races that he will have potentially the best bike on the grid or at least one of them is when the 2025 2026 contracts will be decided so if you want a factory seat this is what you do this is a hundred percent what you do this is how look this is how Enea Bastianini got himself the factory Ducati right isn't it because while Jorge Martin was banging his head against the newest version of the Ducati, and Abastianini made hay with the older version of the Ducati, Marco Bezzecchi, I don't know if he thought of that example specifically, but if, if I'm Valentino Rossi and I want him to stay, that is exactly the example I provide to him. I'm not sure Franco Morbidelli is going to end up in a 2024 Ducati next season, even though I'm pretty sure he's going to end up in a Ducati. Um, so one of these theories, to me, is one that I've, I've had in my head for a while. Uh, and that's the I think if Ducati have their option here, there's there's potentially, you know, it would make more sense for Ducati to move Alex Marquez to Pramac, and have a rider who understands the bike already, 
on the 2024 factory bike next season as opposed to putting a you know a Ducati rookie who let's be honest right now is a bit of an untested quantity um after you know like three horrendous seasons yes um it makes more sense to send him to Cassini and let him learn his Ducati trade and move someone who knows the bike onto the factory bike uh, and there's a path there that the Ducati can easily manipulate to make happen the other thing is that you know, there is probably only one person in the world right now who has the power to give Marco Bezzecchi a 2024, to give him everything he wants, which is a 2024 bike at VR46. And that's probably Pramac Racing boss, Paolo Campanotti, because it's in his contract with Ducati to say that he gets two factory bikes. If he could be persuaded to say that he only wants one of the factory bikes on offer to him, then the other one would automatically go to VR46 and and Marco Bezzecchi. And I wonder if, you know, part of the complication that's going on here, part of the the delay and the negotiation that we know is is happening like crazy in the background is that, you know, maybe Valentino Rossi is trying to lean on Pramac a little bit to do some sort of a deal where they take Marco, but they get Marco Bezzecchi free of charge, essentially. And in return, uh, you know, the the 2024 bike goes to Bez where he wants it in the VR46 team and everything is wrapped up in a nice, neat little package. Um, I am basically making this up as I go. But, you know, there is a there is a puzzle there where all the pieces fit. No, yeah, there's, there's, there's a few. Like, there's there, we, we've had a, a bunch of ridiculous theories going into the weekend. I remember on either Friday or Saturday evening, uh, I think... Simon, you will have you will have missed me by then because I stuck around for a little bit longer. But I was, I was finishing up a story, and my brain was like, "Okay, so Zarco leaves Pramac before Bezeki has taken the Pramac seat, and then Bezeki doesn't take it. The Pramac seat is vacated. Did Honda just sign Johan Zarco away from a seat that Mark Marquez can then fill? That does not sound like it's happening. But for for like for a glorious five minutes, I would be was, great if it did. Ah, it would, have been, it would have been amazing. For glorious five minutes, I was absolutely losing my mind. But it, I think the, the fact that it would have required Honda not to see that possibility if it was real, I mean, man, it's not possible. But what a, what a great scenario. Uh, I Probably not in Pramac's interest to make things easier for VR46. And honestly, if VR46 does join Yamaha in the future, I don't know that it's in Ducati's interest to try to placate them with the works works bike right now but maybe play Kate Bezeki is a different question um for me honestly if Bezeki doesn't want it I think we know Pramac does want an Italian rider of some sort for me almost the tidiest version then is in turning to the other side of the garage going yo Luca Luca Marini you want it you can have it you can have the Pramac seat and then Mark Franco Morbidelli slots in at VR46 where you know Rossi that would also be tidy for Rossi Rossi would probably love seeing Luca on a factory spec bike again and seeing Franco back in, in home colors. But there's there's a few ways you could play it, but but just so far it sounds like Morbidelli is just the path of least resistance. But let, let's see. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. 
In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, let's stick with Pramac chat then, because on track, one of the centres of attention when there was some incidents and, and fairing barging was Zarco's teammate, Jorge Martin, who was given a long lap penalty on for Sunday for causing the turn one chaos we had in the sprint race on Saturday. It was, Simon, one of those classic, you know, bowling ball meets Skittles kind of incidents in the end. Where do you stand on this one? And was the penalty fair? Uh, the penalty wasn't harsh enough, in my opinion. Um, it is not a fair world where you get to essentially ruin six people's races and then finish on the podium. Um, I, I think maybe maybe saying the penalty isn't fair enough is wrong, but it certainly proves how stupid the system is where you know they only seem to want to give penalties out in main races, not sprint races, regardless of where they're caused. Because... Martin deserved, he didn't deserve to be able to stand on the podium at the end of that. Um, that first corner move was wild. I know that Val doesn't necessarily agree with me because he he thinks that Maverick Vinales played a bit of a factor in it as well, I think. But, you know, the 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 fact that Vinales, whenever you watch back, was quite wild in moving across the track uh, to really reposition himself. Um you have to realize that that only happened after Martin had already collided with Fabio Quattararo and sent him out of control. So I think Zarco's pre- or uh, Vinales's presence at that exact moment in time probably only served to make sure that uh, Fabio Quattararo stayed on the bike as opposed to crashed before he took multiple other people out. Um, yeah, it, it was messy. It was unnecessary. It was a wild move made by someone who fully understands that the tyre pressures were going to go through the roof and that you have to do all your overtaking work early on these days. Um, You know, I I understand the justification for it and why he tried to do it, but uh, to to be penalised with like a four-second penalty the day after when he went and stood in the podium, nah, not good enough. I think I think if if they if they do believe it is his fault, then the penalty should have been stricter. Although I actually I do think by having it a Sunday penalty, he lost more points because of that, but he gained a podium. So it's sort of a trade off of what's. If you see him as a as a championship contender still, then maybe the points are worth more than the the sprint podium. Uh, I don't like I don't know I the Vinales dart across really. It, it, it is something that really stood out to me when I watched the, the helicopter footage. Also, what stood out to me is then, you know, in the Sunday race at the start, Alex Marquez did basically the same thing, like one-to-one. I would not be surprised if the if the traces of the trajectories are identical. And I think I think Jorge, Jorge Martin must have noticed those exact same things because I think those are the two things he referenced when, when describing why he felt that the penalty was unfair. I I don't know because also... 
the fact alone that he did basically make the apex isn't enough at turn one. At turn one, you have to know what kind of situation you're going into and what the it's the risk is for the riders there, on the it? outside. Yeah, yeah. But I so look. I certainly don't think it was. I don't think it was egregious. I think you can penalize him, but I don't think it brands him as a as a dirty rider and somebody who's you know done something really wrong deserves to sit out a race, deserves to be black flagged, anything like that. Uh, maybe it was a bit of miscalculations. Maybe it was a bit of negligence, but I don't think it was like completely not on. And it, for me, it is a very different variety to again Takanakagami, Skitling, the the three riders at Barcelona last year. That was different. He was out of control of his bike. Jorge Martin was in control of his bike. He was making the corner. He was just the situation just did not call for that particular corner approach. But it, I guess this is a, like it is a half-hearted defense, but it is a defense that I I, I feel I I do think he probably got a bit over criticized for 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 his role in that. Yes, even though the penalty, I'm basically fine with. I I, I don't for a second think he's a particularly dangerous while rider he's aggressive but that's you know you have to be in MotoGP now so holding nothing against him for it um but whenever you know it, it all comes in the context of other penalties for me when you see riders uh let's let's look at Fabio Quattararo at Assen last season where he crashed out of the race and in the process pushed Alicia Spagaro into the gravel trap Alish stayed on his bike, recovered, and rode to what, fourth place and the greatest overtake I've ever seen, maybe. Um, but Fabio got a long lap penalty for causing not a crash, where only he crashed. Yet we go forward a year, and Jorge Martin is being handled, handed a penalty, the equivalent penalty, when he took out, you know, took three people to the ground, took another three people out of the race, and then went on to finish in the podium. Um, those two things are not equal, and, and that. But know, then you're specifically requesting them to judge outcomes. Then that's, I mean, which is something that I think a lot of people specifically do not want because if you take those moves in a vacuum, I would argue that you know, even though Aleish stood on uh, stood on the bike, Quartararo was more reckless in that Aston move than Jorge Martin was at turn one at the Red Bull ring. Arguably no, because you have to be more careful in turn one. Fair enough. That's I mean, Especially that, at this circuit. You know, yeah. the, the context of it being a turn one in this circuit makes it different. Um, if that had been six laps into the race against one rider and he'd, had, he'd done that, or against two riders and he'd done it, then it would have been different. But, you know, I think there's an onus on a rider to understand that it is turn one and not ride as if it's not. Um, so, no, I, I think that, yeah, I think that there's, you know, let's not fall down the, the rabbit hole of arguing about the stewards again on this because we could be there all day. Um, but it just proves that, again, or or even if it, it doesn't prove anything, it reinforces the stereotypical notion that fans at home have that they pull penalties out of a hat but it, for me it also does prove that it is it is harder than we want it to be that's like I, and again I'm you know I'm this is not uh, like a huge flag waving defense of the FIM stewards panel it's just this is it, it is complicated I think we wish it wasn't but it's you know it is more complicated than certainly more complicated than say football offsides and football can't even manage that particularly well yeah whatever it is, but it's also not four hours after the race to make a decision complicated, which is, again, part of the issue. Like, it shouldn't have dragged on that long. Um, if he'd been given a long lap in the sprint race for that, 
I think people would have seen instant retribution and been happier than they were with it playing out for you know 24 hours the way it did um yeah i mean i i don't pretend to understand what happens in the steward's room yeah it's uh it's it's too late in the episode really to wind you up and uh let you go loose on freddie spencer again but val um martin had another incident in this race he collided with luca marini marini fell off but there was no penalty for that one what did you think of that yeah, I thought it was a racing incident. I mean, maybe slightly more on... Well, yeah, probably slightly more on Martin than on Marini, but he was ahead coming into the court, and it was, it was very, very risky and a very aggressive move to make, but if we accept that in modern MotoGP, it's very hard to make moves of a different nature, maybe that's a bit more forgivable. It's... I I don't have the strongest of opinions on that, and it's like, again, if it was penalized, I would not go outside picketing or whatever. Um, but... For me, like the first, the first thought I had when when I saw the the collision was, oh, Martin's out of control. And then I saw the replay. I was like, but he was ahead coming into the corner. Uh, and you know, once you're ahead coming into the corner, arguably it becomes Marini's responsibility to avoid what happens next because I don't think he washed out unreasonably wide. He stayed like if he because if he goes on that curb. He falls off and he takes out Marini anyway. I think he at that point it is it is all a question of whether it is thought that his original overtaking move was ill advised. For what it's worth, Marini did not mind that not being a penalty. Marini minded the fact that he had not that Martin had not been penalized for the previous incident that he was in the position to do this. But for point. yeah, but for the for the actual incident, Luca sounded like it was yeah. It was pretty close to a racing incident. I mean, in, in any other two-wheel championship in the world, that was a racing incident. Um, my issue with it not being penalised necessarily is whenever you look at other things like the Darren Binder, uh, Jake Dixon collision the week before, the, the race before at Silverstone, which was kind of vaguely similar, um, it then becomes a trickier one because I understand... I understand in isolation why Martin wasn't penalised because it was a racing incident, but in the context of other penalties that have been handed out, I, as usual, don't understand what the stewards are doing. So, yeah, um, that's just how it works these days, unfortunately. The uh, the thing that made it a maybe penalty for me was the lateness of the move. It kind of is a clean move, but you and he did get to the corner first and ahead, yeah. but does he get there at a point that it's too late for Marini to do anything about it. And I, that was what I wondered, yeah, at the time. And I think probably if he hadn't caused a load of people to fall off at the start, you might not have such an emotional reaction to him then dive-bombing someone else and then falling off as well. So it's a combination of factors. Just before we move on to our final topic, um, obviously Valentino Rossi was there this weekend, which is cool, but... We all knew he was there because he was constantly on the TV pictures. And whenever there was an incident involving one of his riders, as with this Marini crash, the TV coverage was obliged to show us the camera that must have been pointing at him all weekend. You know, Valentino's watching from trackside, which is cool. But every time we saw a replay of what he thinks of something, and he looked to me like a man who was reacting in a way that he knew he was being filmed as well. So... I don't think we could see what his real reaction was to that Marini crash because he knew all I can really do is kind of stand still, look a bit sad and put my hands over my face while everyone around me's 
going crazy. Do you, Glenn, do you know about the current Hollywood actor strike generally? Yeah. Yeah, one of the one of the points of contention is that, you know, some of the actors are being scanned to then be digitally used for their digital likeness to you to be used in, in future episodes of TV shows. So is that what's going I on think, here? Well, I think that's Valentino Rossi should protect himself from that contractually, I think. Yeah. So if Dorna could do it. But Simon, just the fact that, you know, during the race, all right, there wasn't always that much action. But we had to keep cutting to Rossi. Sometimes it was live. Sometimes he spotted himself on the screen and waved at the camera. Is that really necessary? And, and do you almost feel sorry for the man that, all right, he's a legend and the sport was carried on his shoulders for the best part of two decades. But it's almost no wonder he doesn't go to more races because he, he can't get a moment's peace when he's there. I, it's, the, it's the perfect example of everything that's wrong in the uh, a certain section of the Dorna offices at the minute. Because what three years on from Valentino Rossi's retirement we're still desperately trying to use the ghost of Valentino Rossi to flog the championship to fans that aren't watching it anymore because the racing is crap now I mean adding more Valentino Rossi to to MotoGP coverage is not surely selling MotoGP to anyone under the sun at the minute all it does is is look desperate really it's like the desperate dying kicks of an organization that doesn't know how to fix its real problems, which is actually selling the sport to an audience that never watched Valentino Rossi racing competitively in the first place. Because it is like, it's what, 17 since he was last really, really a force in MotoGP. Yeah. So we're, we're now like six, seven years on. There's a whole new generation that has come to the sport that since then that doesn't have the same, the same, I don't want to say respect, but the, the same awestruck you know, shock at Valentino Rossi. Reverence. That, yeah, reverence, perfect word. That, that you know, my generation and Val's generation had. That's, that's not there anymore. So why are we still trying to use that to sell the sport? It just feels, yeah, really, really outdated and backwards. And um, it, it kind of highlighted all the problems this weekend for me, that, that like, constant showing of Valentino Rossi every time he appeared. Um, it got so bad that he didn't actually appear at all during the Moto2 race. And whenever Celestino Vietti won, I did tweet to say that someone was desperately screaming in the TV production truck, Where is Valentino? Show him now! Show him now! Because, you know, we, we'd went, like, an hour without seeing Valentino Rossi on TV. I odd. Yeah, it's a bit much. Okay, the last thing I wanted to come to was someone who was anonymous all weekend, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we saw a lot less of him on TV than we did Valentino Rossi. And that's Mark Marquez. Mark was 18th on the grid, uh, 10th in the sprint race, 12th in the main race. He's 19th in the championship, only six points ahead of his old Honda teammate, Danny Pedrosa, who's only taken part in one weekend. A few races ago, I mentioned to you guys uh, in our work chat, I was fed up with Marquez making a show of how bad the Honda was by constantly crashing it. And I think you mentioned it on the show at the time, actually. Um, thanks for my shout-out. I appreciate it. But, Val, if, if if Mark isn't doing that, and I'm not suggesting for one second that he listens to me, is this the only alternative? Does he either try to drag the bike to places it doesn't belong and fall off, or does he have to settle for, for being an also-ran? That's, I mean, that's you basically took words out of his mouth. I mean that's that's that that is basically exactly what 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 he told us on on Saturday and Sunday and all through the weekend. Like, if if Mark says that if he is not to crash, if he is to keep himself intact for when the bike is potentially better, this is what he can do. 
and when he doesn't feel good on the bike, when a, he says when a Honda rider doesn't feel good on the bike and he tries to extract something extra, the outcome is usually gravel and sometimes, you know, the hospital bed. Um, it, you know, it is so tempting to just read a sort of Fernando Alonso-esque thing here, right? And also it is, it is tempting to do that with Fernando Alonso, but that's a different situation. But like that he's, you know, playing up and then when he's, when he's not crashing it deliberately, well, not deliberately, but when he's not cr- riding over the limit, specifically accepting the risk of crashing and knowing that, you know, that's not going to make him look bad, that's going to make the bike look bad. When he's not doing that and he's just riding off the pace, also sort of theatrically to show what the bike is. But I, I don't know. I, I don't want to do that. I think he's just, this is the his realization that there's nothing much left to achieve right now in this season. So just, you know, get through it get through the races, get all the data you can get, stay healthy, stay in one piece. I think we could we could criticize him if he wasn't the top Honda, but he's he still leads the Hondas. Like he still he still ends up finishing as as the top Honda almost always basically. This weekend started it looked like Takanakagami had the other Honda's number and no, he, he immediately ran out of pace. He immediately ran out of in weekend progress. Mir looked improved relative to Marquez, he again crashed. Um Iker Lequona looked pretty decent, but again, Mark Mark had all of them covered very comfortably. So I can't I can't fault what he's doing too much. I, again, it because I was I was partially with you on that, Glenn. I thought that he he should not have risked so much. I think he should have settled for more points. But if I said that back in the season, then now I have to accept him doing this. This is what settling for points looks like. And yeah, these points are crap now, but that's what's on offer. Uh, he is going to score bigger points this season, almost certainly, but I don't know how much bigger. Um, it is very unfulfilling. It is not particularly great to watch for, for anyone involved. And MotoGP knows how that of the of its current riders, Mark is you know still the, the golden boy and the most interesting one of them. So it is really telling that we barely saw him on TV because also somebody in TV direction realized he's not going to go anywhere today. This is, you know, this is... He's he's running to to where he started, and he's there's not going to be a charge. He's just going to be there. I mean, I feel like if there was ever any question mark over how talented Mark Marquez is, it's probably the fact that he's trying to ride around and survive and not break himself, and still scoring kind of you know scraping points every race. Whereas Juan Mir is trying to do the exact same and still ends every race in the gravel trap at the minute. Um, that that bike is just I can't even imagine how horrible that thing is to ride at the minute. And uh, Marquez, you know, even for being in cruise mode, limp mode, is still making something out of it, which no other Honda rider is doing. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's you can only hope it's acting as a warm as a warning, you know, wake up call to Honda, and that things are potentially going to get a little bit better. Hopefully, at Misano in a few weeks' time when the new bike comes, but who knows? Because otherwise, we're going to see, you know. We're going to see Mark Marquez waste the prime of his career. We're going to see the greatest rider, one of the greatest riders in history, basically stunted in terms of what could have been ultimately possible through really no fault of his own. And we're going to see Juan Mir join a list of you know yet more people who uh, have tried and failed to do anything at all as Mark Marquez's teammate. Um, he admitted over the weekend that he was considering retirement mid-season at 25 years old like that's how bad this is at the minute people were talking about retiring at 25 just to escape the honda 
Um, you know, the other point that, that someone made to me over the weekend on social media that really drove it home was that no one has signed a Honda contract extension, a Repsol Honda contract exception, apart from Mark Marquez since Danny Pedrosa in 2016. <laughs> you know, that is how bad that state of affairs is at the minute. It's, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, uh, there is going to be more journalists at Mark Marquez's debrief on Monday afternoon at the test in Misano than there will it be at any point this season, I'm pretty sure, just to hear what those first words are. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I guess when he was crashing it a lot, my feeling was he was doing it to put pressure on Honda. Cause it's like, look, I try and drag your bike to the front and it all, I always fall off and then I just I become a meme in the gravel trap. Um and I guess the risk was always that once you slide to the back and the TV pictures ignore you, is that putting as much pressure on Honda Japan? Is being anonymous putting as much pressure on Honda Japan as as crashing closer to the front? But the the final thing I want us to touch on here, in the most recent episode in this feed, uh, Toby Moody spoke to veteran Spanish journalist Manuel Pathino. And their theory on this was that Marquez doesn't want to be there anymore. He doesn't want to ride the Honda anymore. And because he can't get out of his contract, he's just decided I'm going to roll around and stop hurting myself while the bike is this bad. Simon, do you think that's the case? And Val mentioned the point of, um, you know, he, he doesn't want to hurt himself until the bike, you know, he wants to take risks until the Honda is better. Is there potentially a scenario here where he doesn't want to hurt himself anymore because he wants to be able to get out of this con when his contract ends, he wants to be fit enough to ride another bike to the best of his ability. I think he's already half in KTM mode. He said <laughs> some really interesting things at the weekend. Uh, he kicked off his trip to Austria with uh, a visit to host broadcaster, Austrian host broadcaster service TV studio, where he sat next to KTM director of motorsport, Pitt Pryor and waxed lyrical about how amazing the uh, current KTM is, which he had no much better whatsoever be. to do. How, yeah, and did all this. Then tried on Jack Miller's leather. Well, he did it all. He did it all wearing a plain white Red Bull T-shirt, not Repsol Honda colors. Um, he then went on over the course of the weekend to tell journalists somewhere that uh, the Red Bull Ring is the circuit that he advises all his friends to go to when they ask him which round outside of Spain they should attend because it's so amazing and so beautiful and so wonderful. Um, I mean, he's basically the Austrian tourism board at this point, and that's not for no reason. Subtle. Yeah. I mean, Mark Marquez isn't exactly someone you know for subtlety, is it? So it's kind of, it's, it's on brand. No, no, that's true. I'm, to be, I am sure he is also exploring elsewhere. But it, it, at, at that point also, like if the Honda does get good, he may well stay. And also at that point, the, the question comes out of, you know, he there is still a lot of money on that Honda contract, right? So it's it's a question of who's getting what out of that for what money in the sense that, you know, if Marquez is in this mode for the rest of 2023, I guess that's, you know, that doesn't put so much pressure on Honda. But does the money being paid to Marquez put pressure on Honda while he's still under contract? How, like, the kind of expenditure. He's, 2024 is going to be way too expensive for this. Way too expensive. So that, for me, that would be... Again, when you're a big, a huge manufacturer, maybe it's still a drop in the ocean and I'm not thinking about this clearly. But... I think I think they will still feel the pressure. I think he will feel the pressure. I think maybe maybe he is already mentally somewhere else, but more I just I just think that he is just 
right now, there's no reason to get hurt. There's nothing to get hurt for. And it's just, you know, if, his, if there is a message from him to his Honda, it is give me a bike that I will even consider getting myself hurt for. Yeah, which this this right now is very obviously not. Yeah, I mean, he's always shown himself to be someone who's he's not afraid of getting hurt if the rewards are worth it and they're just not at the moment. So I think that'll do us for recapping the, the Austria weekend. So thanks, Simon and Val, for guiding us through the show in Matt's absence. And it's good to see a weekend of being together in the paddock Hasn't left any lasting damage on either of you, or at least your relationship, as far as I can tell. You still seem to be... It's already broken, yeah, so... Yeah, well, you, you, you do a good job of pretending to be friends. Um, Matt will be back in command of you both uh, two weeks from now after the Catalonia Grand Prix. And before then, we'll have another Toby Talks 2 special episode. So keep an eye on this feed to find out who Toby gets hold of next. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.